Hello and welcome to Laps Gamer Radio, the little show that tries very, very hard. <laughs> I am your host, Stuart Neal, and joining me as co-host is Mark Hamer. Happy America Day! <laughs> Way to date the podcast, Mark. <laughs> also joining me as a very special guest tonight is Laura Dale. Hello, Laura. Hello, I'm here, I'm queer, I'm gonna talk about video games probably, woo! <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that is why we have you on. Mm. Um, so, Laura, I'll just run through very, very quickly um, a little bit about yourself. Uh, so, you are Laura. You write about video games for a living and have written and podcasted and done so much stuff. It's quite an impressive resume. Um, but go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, yeah, so the short version is I've been writing full-time about video games for about three years. Um, started doing that as a way to just, like, to make a very boring job in a supermarket a little more interesting. I just wrote ideas about articles. Somehow that became a whole job through Patreon. Um, I write for pretty much anywhere that will pay me money to do so, and I write a mix of silly stuff about video games leaks of video games and review like reviews of video game character butts alongside like serious critique of the industry it's a, it's a weird melting pot of stuff i do <laughs> <laughs> it's a very entertaining um melting pot mm. um just even just looking at your sort of twitter followers and what have you you have what thirty-eight thousand um current followers on twitter that, which is that is a terrifying number that i will never be very, able to mentally process <laughs> yeah that is a very very scary number um but it's funny within the games industry that even with say thirty-eight thousand, you could still mention your name to some people and they would have absolutely no idea who you are oh in the grand I scheme think- of things of like internet fame i'm a nobody still like um, yeah. i'm like the people who know who i am know who i am but outside of that mm. like no one's heard of me <laughs> but you're still famous enough to have your own parody account which for a lot of people they do have to double take whenever that oh parody gosh. account <laughs> tweets i have had to do that a few times to be like what for anyone who wants to check it out it's laura k buzz spelt backwards and z-z-u-b-k-a-r-u-a-l uh the person who runs it puts a lot of time and effort into being very very creative and funny i know who runs it i won't spoil it but they do very impressive work it's it's phenomenal work you know it literally is sometimes um it'll be you know maybe one or two tweets after your own and sort of think no, 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 the avatar is upside down. <laughs> it's definitely the parody account. <laughs> because some of them are just so close to reality. It's it is like a, a it's like a Twitter parallel universe version of you, um, which is nearly indistinguishable. Uh, so you had said that you've been a full time um games journalist for about three years now. Um what have you well, I'm just looking at the sort of the um, places that you've written for. Um, so you've worked at, as UK editor for Destructoid, freelanced at uh, Rock Paper Shotgun, Kotaku UK, The Guardian, Polygon, Vice, IGN. Uh, you've written for the Jimquisition and uh, others. So you've just written for everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> if, if they are willing to pay money to people to do work, <laughs> I will find a way to get them to give me money. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention your podcast back catalogue as well, oh, um, which is I've been on too many numerous, podcasts to name yeah, over the years. <laughs> 
numerous and many. Um, I, of course, came across you from doing the yeah, Year of Steam um, oh, podcast and yeah. then had the pleasure of actually guesting on with you as well <laughs> um, for, I think, one episode where kind of our scheduling all worked out. <laughs> and um, yeah, no, and then obviously I got to meet you then at EGX last year as well, uh, which was really nice. Um, so, yeah, um, how... Okay, you'd been doing the um, sort of writing and things as a an aside um, to like a proper job, if you want to call it that, as a working in the supermarket and things. How did it then move on into going basically freelance and full time? Um, so here's how it went. I'd I'd probably spent maybe a couple of years doing unpaid work just um, in my free time outside of. Outside of supermarket work, I would write down ideas at the, like while I was sat on the uh, the checkout and would write them up when I got home. And I ended up losing my job really suddenly. Um, you know, I can't prove that it was to do with transphobia, but like I'd had never a complaint working in the supermarket for three years. And like two weeks after I came out as trans, I was unfortunately let go. Um, mm. So like it was a bit of a shitty, unexpected situation. But the... The outcome of it was that I had a couple of months worth of savings aside and I thought, look, I'm I'm not working right now. This doesn't happen often. I'm going to I've got enough to live for, say, two months without finding it before I need another job. I will take one month and see if I can make this enough of a job to cover my bills. If not, I'll use the other month to find a new, like, proper job. And... Within that first month, I made it up to, I think, $600 a month on Patreon, um, mostly from people who'd been following my unpaid work and wanted to support that. Um, It definitely helped that around the the time that I launched the Patreon, Jim Sterling also contacted me separately um, and said, hey, do you want to be on a podcast with me? Which being on a podcast with Jim Sterling at the same time as I was trying to launch a Patreon was very helpful. (laughs) And... Within that first month, I made just enough money to scrape by in my tiny little one-bedroom flat above a pub, and I just haven't looked back from there. Very impressive. Ooh. And how difficult is it um, managing through via Patreon and freelancing and things like that? Um, because I know even sort of listening or following an awful lot of journalists and things on Twitter that freelancing is difficult. Um, mm. especially the fact that not necessarily even getting jobs and things to do, um, you know, getting your pitches accepted and things like that, but to do with then the invoicing and the actual money and everything coming through like that. How hard is it, um, sort of living day to day, um, as a freelancer? Uh, one thing I didn't expect coming into this job was how much of my life would be consumed by paperwork and emails and bureaucracy, uh, of one kind or another. (laughs) Filling out your own tax returns. Yeah. Patreon's not too bad because Patreon will basically like put together a spreadsheet each month for you that you can download where it's like, this is the money that you took in from Patreon. This is the people it came from, how much each person gave you his like fill in this tax form and we'll calculate the tax and put that on the bottom of your paperwork. And I basically around tax season, we'll just go and like throw that at a, um, I forget the name of the person now, person that deals with taxes, uh, accountant. accountant. Yeah. I'll throw it in an accountant and be like, here's the paperwork (laughs) help. Freelance uh, taxes are ridiculously high. Um, I tend to put away about a third of everything I make goes in a savings account to basically just be when tax season rolls around, this is what I will use to pay taxes. Um, On top of that, 
freelancing can be really difficult because of the like irregularity of work. If you're not mm. getting articles, you're not getting paid. Um, freelancing alongside having a Patreon is really nice because it means that the Patreon is a baseline level of income I can count on, mm. which means that every month I know I'm going to have enough to get by on. And then I can sort of anything I do freelance on top is a nice bonus that I can use to like save for the future because like I'm not in an employed job where I'm getting things like a pension paid and things like that. So it's it's nice to have like a safety net month to month and then I can worry about the other things with freelance. <laughs> yeah. With your Patreon at the minute, you're also then supporting um or well. Um, you have the new venture of Let's Play Video Games dot com, mm -hmm. um, and through that, then you're obviously founder and co-editor in chief with uh, yourself, Vicky Blake, and Joe Parlock, mm -hmm. um, which was formed then after you were all um, <laughs> dismissed <laughs> from uh, the Structoid, unceremonially let go. Works. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Destructoid was a thing. Um, I'm, I will always be grateful to Destructoid for giving me a salaried editorial position that I can put on my resume and be like, hey, look, I was UK editor of a site that people have heard of. Um, mm. What wasn't so great was the whole being an editor with two salaried staff and being told two days before I had to go in for like very major surgery and like the editors at Destructoid knew this they knew I was like 48 hours away from you're gonna need several weeks off to recover from this kind mm. of surgery they were like yeah sorry you let go um and we launched let's play video games designed the logo made sure we had the the web domain let's play video games.com secured um set up the Patreon reward tier and got enough money on Patreon to cover replacing those salaries within 48 hours, which is kind <laughs> of, kind of amazing. Yeah. Hmm. I'm sure now after being let go from Destructoid, um, I, there was a recent thing about them wanting, uh, sort of more freelance <laughs> writers and things like that yeah. and uh, partic particularly women um, after letting yourself and Vicky go <laughs> yeah I'm sure that uh, sort of stung a little mm. bit uh, screw it why not I'll, I'll talk about this um, so I, I made some tweets about that whole uh, ha 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 you're looking for female writers are you maybe you shouldn't have let the two that you had go I got contacted by their uh, new editor and uh, offers were on the table that I have not responded to <laughs> okay but they um, I their new owners were not the people who made the decision to let our team go, yeah. but equally there are reasons I've not talked about that I uh, I have reasons not to to go back because what I don't mm. really need to. I'm making the same money mm. by having let's play video games where me, Joe, and Vicky can do what we want and have a lot of editorial freedom and build up our own brand, and you know we're happy with that. Yeah. No, the uh, variety of articles that go up on Let's Play Video Games is impressive. Um, just even with Joe doing bits and pieces to do with, you know, from one week going from the division and loot boxes um, to talking about how uh, 
I was going to say the big red dog, and I can't remember the big oh, red dog. Oh, Clifford. Clifford the big red yeah, dog Clifford being a titan from dog. Attack on Titan. Yep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> his, his, his logic was rock solid. <laughs> <laughs> and... And then there's, uh, well, there's your own website and everything as well, but then obviously you are well known as being the Khaleesi of butts. Yeah, that was the thing I accidentally stumbled into. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the the story of the whole butts thing, it was a completely unintentional joke that got way out of hand. Um, When I was launching the Patreon, I was trying to make enough in that first month to be like, yeah, I can just about afford to, to make do. And I went on Twitter and one of the things I asked was, hey... What would you like me to do that if I, I agreed to do it, you would donate me money on Patreon? And someone tweeted me, and I wish I remembered who, because whoever this is started the butts thing. And I've dug <laughs> back trying to find this tweet, and I can't find w- where the tweet that originated it is. Just this one person who tweeted, you should review the butts of video game characters. And I retweeted it as a joke. I thought, haha, that's a silly suggestion. And I had about 30 or 40 people tweet me and say, if you do this, I will support you on Patreon. And <laughs> I agreed to do it. And it led, like, the end goal of that is I did a talk at Game, like a headline keynote talk at GamerX last year about the butts of video game characters. That was my keynote talk as a guest <laughs> of honor at GamerX. <laughs> it's amazing the uh, serendipity of life sometimes, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah, life life does what life does. <laughs> to be fair though, it is probably the most important topic in video games is who has the greatest well, uh, butt. We'll get into this slightly. I think most people underestimate how much you can tell about a character's personality and priorities by the design of their butt on the in-game model. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the go-to example I always tend to use, because I think it's a really nice example of this, is... Ellie from Borderlands 2. Yeah. She is a larger character, definitely. Um, she's very sort of like built for what she does. She's a mechanic. A little extra bit of cushion is useful for a job where you have to sort of be around on your like on the floor rustling about a lot. That said, mm-hmm. the one bit of her butt that I think is a really interesting design is that on her like overall dungarees, denim, whatever they are, on one of the butt cheeks, she has a flower. And it's the only bit of patterned design on her. And it tells you that, yeah, she's a larger lady, but she's not trying to hide that. She's willing to draw your attention to it. And it highlights that, yeah, she's a larger lady, but she's a very confident, body positive larger lady. Yeah. And you can mm. tell that all by the fact that she's got a flower on her butt. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's a lot that you can learn from butts. Butts are important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which would be your favorite? Mm. Given all video game characters. Because I, I, I've got an idea what I think yours might be. I have to maybe clarify your question. Do you, My personal favorite in terms of taste or the one that I think is the most interesting? Your personal favorite. I think I've got an I'm, idea what it might be. It depends when you ask me and what kind of mood I'm in. You know, there's, there's a butt for every move, uh, mood. But, uh, to, there is, yeah. It's yeah, like movies. Today, I'm going to suggest Tracer from, from Overwatch. That's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, and I don't know whether she's just her butt's on my mind because I recently got a pair of Tracer uh, Tracer leggings and they make my butt look really good. Very but, fetching. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tracer is like, if you ask me today, I'd say Tracer. With her impossibly deep butt crack. <laughs> her butt is deceptive, though, because 
Because she's a horrible character. <laughs> now, I only say that because I'm a Reinhardt main, um, and so she's like a fucking mosquito that you can't get rid of. I will let this slide only because I am your guest and I don't want to uh, cause a ruckus in the house I've been invited into. <laughs> <laughs> it's not her actual character. It's the fact that I have been murdered by so many um, Tracer players when I've That's, been playing as Reinhardt, yeah. and you can't even fucking see her, let alone hit her with his hammer. So, so. The, the interesting thing about her butt is that if you look at her character model, her butt, her butt crack is impossibly deep, and that's how, no matter what angle you view it from, it looks like it has, it looks like it has really good shadow on it. And usually in character models, to get that kind of shading, they'll pre-bake the shadows. They didn't here. Yeah. They just gave her like a butt crack that reaches right to the like the front of her. If it went any deeper, it would come out of her front. <laughs> so that the lighting engine in game would make her look like she had a deep, like a a bulbous butt from any angle rather than pre-baking the light but facts <laughs> yeah it is it is a complex issue it's probably the most important thing to talk yeah. about in video one, games. one day a site like ign um, will hire me on as their uh, video game butts editor exactly you know, yeah they'll realize the importance Official one day but correspondent <laughs> I just love the fact that you've talked to Mike Bithell about butts. Oh, that that was that was possibly the most surreal one I did. So this was Laura's gaming butts. Uh, Thomas was alone, and for anyone who doesn't know, Thomas was alone. It is a game about friendships where where you play as like rectangles of varying sizes, and I got yeah. the developer mm -hmm. to spend maybe an hour very seriously talking to me about the shapes of the rectangles how those corresponded to human body types, what that meant their butts were like, and how those butts then tied <laughs> back in to the characterization of those characters in the game. And he was he was a really good sport about it. He was willing to talk about it as if this was 100% definitely design decisions he'd made and not just some goof that he was going along with. Mm. It may be the most fun I've had doing a butts discussion just because... He was very willing to go along with the goof and to take mm. it take it just as seriously as I was taking it. Yes, Mike is um, prolific on Twitter, um, probably just as much as yourself mm. about various issues and things like that. And he does just come across so lovely and just having a sort of wonderful, warm sense of humor about a lot of yeah. stuff. Having like chatted with him a fair amount, he's he's a very nice person to work with. Yeah, one of the other things that you've been recently known for is. The surprising number of leaks or rumors or things that you have got spot on um, or indeed leaked before they had been officially announced. Um, there was the PS4 Slim. There was a lot of the information about the Nintendo Switch. And then obviously the last one has been the Mario and Rabbids uh, Kingdom mm. Battle, um, which was only recently mm. announced in, the, uh, in a Nintendo Direct. I'm not going to ask about sources and things like that, but you obviously have a fair amount of good contacts within the industry. Um, is it difficult getting those relationships and keeping them? So I'll, I'll be honest about this. A lot of my getting into doing leaks, I fell into. Um, and I know that's that's like a weird thing to say. So like I've talked... I talked quite in quite a lot of detail about the first time I, I leaked something in detail, um, knowing that the way I talk about this does protect the source uh, on that first leak. And this was leaking Until Dawn Rush of Blood, which was the big uh, VR on rails minecart shooter for PlayStation VR. 
And I leaked that about, I think it was about a week, maybe 10 days before Paris Games Week where it was shown off. And this particular example that I can talk about in some depth was someone reached out to me completely unprompted and said, hey, I, I, I like you and your work. Here's a thing that I saw at like a market testing event with like 30 other people. So it's like you can't no one can nail down which person was me. And mm. they just proceeded to detail this this DLC. They gave me the name, the controls, the specifics. I um I went digging by myself after that and I found a URL registered under the name Rush of Blood. I found them refer like references in interviews to Rush of Blood which was an odd phrase for them to use in interviews, which is obviously them teasing it. And I used information provided by that source to track down a second source, knowing where to look for sources at this point, and found someone mm. that could corroborate it all. And that all just started because someone reached out to me that I hadn't asked, who said, hey, I have this, what can we do with it? Um, they were able to verify a lot of the things I needed, and that definitely helped. But it it depends every time how these things go. Um, differing sources are differing levels of importance within the industry, I guess. there's like There are people who like that. It's like, hey, we got a bunch of us got asked to look at this game and I recognized what it was. Sometimes it will be person at a studio who personally knows what's going on. Sometimes there's a game of, of sort of just uh, telephone. I think it's it, the game's called of just like whispering in people's ears and like the things get to you that way. I think the biggest challenge for me is passing out what information is accurate and should be reported, what information is a credible lead that I should look for more evidence on, and what mm. information to completely disregard and ignore. Mm. I know one of the criticisms of me in the past year, while I, uh, probably since August 2016, there was probably nine months or so, like six to nine months where I was big into doing leaks. And one of the big criticisms made is the fact that there were times where I talked about things that either didn't pan out or that, you know, I overstretched and reported too much. And some of it would have been from sources that weren't reliable. And I will acknowledge that there are things that I've reported that either were incorrect or were or haven't been shown correct yet that being said it's it's been a lot of a, a learning experience i have to take my victories where i can and to remind myself in the face of criticism that there are things that i talked about before anyone else and that i did dig up and source and report on and that that is you know me doing my job and it's the reason why i recently got a mario and rapids themed tattoo to remind myself like <laughs> hey look this thing was like nine months of me being called a liar every day on the internet and i got my moment of vindication of like yeah i i nailed this and to just remind myself like sometimes i do really nail this job and Mm -hmm. You know, I try and be transparent with people. I have a big mega post up somewhere where I'm like, here is me discussing like how I sourced all these rumors and where they fall fell apart and where they succeeded. And I think for me, the big thing is just be transparent, report where I think it's appropriate and try and keep people who aren't in the industry aware of like, this is why leaks sometimes work, sometimes don't, etc. Mm. I do think that you have been an awful lot braver than a lot of other 
mainstream um, sort of gaming journalist outlets purely because they all they really seem to do is just parrot back um, the press releases and things like that. Whereas what you've been doing is actually going out and delving and you know getting sources and things like that and actually finding out this information and um, releasing it and now and you have received an awful lot of abuse mm-hmm. um, because people don't like spoilers apparently <laughs> uh, it, it varies time to time as to why people get annoyed um, mm, yeah like a good example of one where I understand why people were annoyed was the PS4 slim um, and that, that was a weird one, because, like, other outlets clearly knew it was real and were backing down from coverage. Um, good mm. example being Eurogamer had a video of the thing running, and then they took it down, citing legal concerns. Um, <laughs> and it's weird, because I understand why people got angry about that one, because the Xbox One S had recently released, and people were basically like, oh, this is just a slimmer PS4, it's not any kind of jump up in power, that means the Xbox One S is better than the the PS4 Slim, that means Mm. that Xbox is better than Sony, and Sony fans did not want to acknowledge that their box was, as I was reporting it, not an upgrade, just a smaller package. And they were like, no, it's it's gonna be like an Xbox One X as well, Uh, and getting angry at me for that. That one I at least, like... Understand where console loyalty played a role, but oh god, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it is the worst. I never understood why people get so um fanatically defensive about not just it's not even just about a piece of hardware, they, they get fanatically defensive about a multinational corporation which really could not give a about yeah, any of yeah. them. But, like, that leak in particular, like, points out why I got into doing leaks in the first place, which is this... That was the first thing I did, I think, of the 2016 stuff, was the unboxing and review of the PS4 Slim. And I did that because I was frustrated. I had this physical console that I knew worked and existed in my hands, and other outlets clearly had got their hands on and weren't talking about. And I'm like... I'm not doing my job as a journalist if I don't report the fact that this physical box I have, that I'm not under any kind of NDA, it's out there in the wild. I purchased one. It exists. Mm. I felt frustrated that the industry wasn't talking about it and that PR were either denying or not acknowledging its existence. Mm. And that's why I was like, I put that review up, I put the unboxing up, and I was like, I might get... Sony lawyers at the door, but I, you know, if I don't do this, I'm I'm no better than a glorified rewriter of press releases, which I didn't want to be. And yeah. I think that yeah. motivation is what pushed forward into a lot of the Switch hardware leaks, um, the stuff with like the capture button, offset sticks, split D-pad, HD rumble, uh, all of that kind of stuff. It was this feeling of. If this information is out there and I'm not under NDA, like if I wait until this is officially announced, all I'm doing is republishing what I'm told by the PR and PR don't have to tell you the truth because they Mm -hmm. want to spin their products the best way they can. They want them to be seen as perfect. And, Mm. you know, if I'm getting this not through the PR filter, I should be reporting it. And yeah, yeah, it, it was just a thing that felt like it felt like an important thing to do. And 
I would probably still be doing it if it wasn't for the sheer amount of backlash that happens for <laughs> for doing it. Like, I've not leaked anything in months just because, oh, the backlash. The PS4 Slim thing in particular was hilarious because it was kind of a bit like um, the situation you get when somebody files like a super injunction against the press reporting on something in a weird sort of way. Everybody knows it exists, but official media outlets aren't talking about it. And then it went on for a while. It's like the internet knows that the PS4 Slim exists and no, no, like IGN, GameSpot, Eurogame, whatnot, aren't really talking about it. It was the top trending thing on Twitter at one point was PS4 yeah, Slim. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And then it finally breaks and the internet goes on about it for ages and it's like, great. But then it did lead to the, the hilarious moment at the PlayStation experience when like the paid Sony lackeys in the audience were like whooping and hollering when they officially announced a console that everybody had known existed for months. <laughs> so that was quite fun. I, I'm so <laughs> sad I couldn't get enough money together to fly out there because like if I could have flown out there, I knew someone who was willing to give me their pass to get in. And I was going to bring my PS4 Slim mm. with me. And the temptation was to just like, before they announced it, just stand up and just on live stream be like, just to make a point. It was, you know, there's a little bit of me that's sad. I couldn't, you know, I was like, I, I, you know, if I, if I had disposable money to throw around, it would have been a, a fun thing to do. Mm. Have you ever had any experience of like leaking some news, which could be perceived rightly or wrongly as being bad news that you then get a lot of backlash over? Because I remember there was a big incident before no man's sky came out and um oh, the, was that the delay on it that kotaku reported yeah, yeah. jason schreier Shreya, schreier uh, i think yeah um reporting th uh, that there was going to be a delay and the the more rabid elements of the no man's sky fandom going after him on twitter for it and um, on reddit and whatnot for ages and then it turned out to be true just because they didn't want it to be true um, have you ever come across anything I like that? I definitely got a bit of that with the um, the Until Dawn Rush of Blood thing, because reporting that the next Until Dawn thing we're getting is an on-rails minecart shooter in VR with motion controls, mm. no one was happy about that. And what definitely increased the negativity I got was the day I put that report out, there was a Reddit AMA with Supermassive Games, who are the developer, and they were very sneaky. Mm. While they didn't actively say that Until Dawn Rush of Blood did not exist, they were asked a question about, is there a piece of Until Dawn DLC called Rush of Blood coming? And they said, no, because it's not a DLC, it's a standalone experience. But they clearly knew what they yeah. were being asked and, you know, mm. sn snuck around mm. it. So for the week between me putting my rumour up and it getting revealed at um, at Paris Games Week, I had people who were angry at me because they didn't want this to be the future of Until Dawn. I also had people angry at me because they're like, oh, the developer said that this isn't a thing, so you're lying. Oh, stop lying about video games to get attention. And mm -hmm. the combination of them together, like, they didn't want to believe it, and they had an official source telling them it wasn't real. So they got very angry at me for suggesting it was real. Allow me to put my conspiracy theory yeah. hat on for a second. That seems like a particularly specifically phrased question that was aimed at the developers uh, there. I'm not going to conspiracy theory that because that, that <laughs> may be my own fault because that is the one place where I slipped up on the Until Dawn Rush of Blood reporting is 
both of my sources described it as DLC. Right. Which, following it up later on, it's they they made assumptions based on the fact that they were told in the te- market testing that it was a downloadable experience, and as such, they assumed it was like DLC, mm. and they both used that phrase. But right. because I'd used the phrase DLC, someone asked about DLC, and they said no. Even though clearly, mm. like, they mm. knew what was being asked about. Like, I'd correctly said... It is an on-rails minecart shooter with motion controls for PlayStation VR, where you're going through shooting all of the things from Until Dawn. Mm. I'm going to take a, um, I'm going to take a wild guess here and and uh, guess that maybe nobody who's ever called you out on Twitter, who then uh, on something that you'd predicted that then turned out to be right, has ever come back and apologised. One person that came back oh wow one person that was actively aggressive and like very distressing the things they were saying who came back to mm-hmm. me after e3 this year and was like look i'm sorry i really shouldn't have done that wow it's it's incredibly rare it's uh yeah almost nobody does mm-hmm. and it's it's always the focus from them is always like oh well you got these things wrong it's like yeah but i also got these things right that i definitely couldn't have guessed so i clearly I'm doing something right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, How do you feel about the current relationship between journalism and the big companies and particularly sort of their PR um, arms and things like that? I've I've talked about this a few places recently. I honestly think that not enough people remember that PR are not your friends. Um you know, it may start with a little lie here and there to get you excited, but like PR's role is to only tell you the best things about their product and to get you excited and to hide anything critical about their product away mm. from you. Like that's just what their role is. Their role is to make this product, whether it is good or bad, be something that you want to purchase. That's always been the case. Yeah. And the press's role is to stand there and decode some of that bullshit and to be like, look, mm-hmm. this is what they told you, but we played the game and this is either what they told you that was wrong or what they deliberately didn't tell you. These are the things that like PR's messaging isn't getting getting to you. Um, and all too often I see consumers and people in the press being far too forgiving of outright dishonesty that has consequences just because oh it's pr they're allowed to do it and they're al- mm. pr people are allowed to lie they have every right to lie if they want but i can also like i have the right to call them out and say it's bullshit <laughs> going to that until dawn example yeah it wasn't an active lie it was a lie of omission they like deliberately like made it seem like what i'd said was untrue because they had their planned pr schedule and that's fine But that did have a consequence, and that consequence for me was I got to spend a week being harassed and called a liar when I had accurately reported something, because PR answered a question about my report in order to imply that I was lying. And their lie of omission painted me as a, not liar of omission, but a liar of action that was actively lying to people. Mm. And stuff like this just frustrates me. It, like, PR and press need to have a symbiotic relationship to some degree. We need some degree of access from them to do our job. They need coverage from us to some degree in order to get the word out that you know people don't see as a direct marketing line. Mm. But this 
back and forth can't exist properly when the press can't believe direct statements from PR. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the example that frustrated me a lot around E3 this year was Michel Ancel, who I know is not strictly PR, but he, you know, he was speaking for a developer in like, here is the developer company stance on this question. Like he's he's enough that I think he falls under that PR bracket in this case. Um, shortly before E3, he was asked on Instagram, will Beyond Good and Evil 2 be at E3? And he basically said, nope, not going to be at E3. See it sometime later. And then like two weeks later, it was at E3. And now, anything Michelle Ansel says about Beyond Good and Evil 2, as as a journalist, I don't know when to take him seriously at his word. Like he mm. like he could tell me to he could say today, it's not coming to Xbox One, it's gonna be a PS4 exclusive. And I wouldn't know whether to believe that statement or whether that statement is oh, we're not talking about it coming to Xbox One yet, but it will. We just said it wouldn't because we hadn't announced it yet. <laughs> like, it, That's presuming, of course, that game's even going to come out within the Xbox One yeah, life cycle. Yeah, of course. But like, the, you, you see what frustrates me? It's this idea of if PR lie to press about small, silly things, then like very quickly get proven like, okay, that was like, that was an untrue statement we lose our ability as press to be like, this definitive statement was made, therefore this is the truth about this game. That falls apart. And I worry that if we're not critical about this as an industry now, we're going to reach a point where PR statements lose any meaning whatsoever over time, because the message right now to PR is you can tell lies if you then say, oh, it was to get you excited, and that's Making some lies okay and some not is a very troubling line to see being walked by PR. The whole relationship between PR and the press has been the same for quite a long time. There's been worrying changes recently, like the whole um, not giving out, like Bethesda, for instance, not giving out early copies of games to established, you know, proper video game critical outlets but giving them early to friendly influencers who they know are going to give them good coverage uh, it doesn't matter how transparent the particular youtuber is about that it's still it still strikes me as being very shady yeah it's it's something that's already starting to bite bethesda in 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 the backside and i'm hoping that that's going to deter more companies from following suit um mm. the example i'm talking about here is uh prey when it released and when it went up online there was present in it a like on launch day a very severe save bug that corrupted ign's save and that Bethesda couldn't fix. And at this point, the game is out. This was a retail copy that IGN had purchased, and they had a corrupted mm-hmm. save that they could not continue with. Mm-hmm. And IGN gave the PC copy of that game like a 3 out of 10 or something, because it was uncompletable and unplayable on launch mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. And like as a consumer, like even though it got patched like before the review went up, at the time that the person wrote that review... They reviewed a purchasable retail product that they played like a retail consumer Mm. and lost all of their progress on because of a hard save corruption bug. Mm. And the mere fact that they had to go and get a retail copy of it after it was out means that 
you know, God knows how many people would have gone and bought that game yeah. without being able to inform but, themselves properly b- beforehand yeah. of the quality. Like, this is this is my point. It's like a three out of ten from an outlet like IGN is a thing that reflects really poorly on Bethesda. And mm-hmm. you know how Bethesda could have avoided that situation? Give IGN and other outlets copies before launch, because then if this yep. safe corruption bug happens, you say, look, we're sorry, it is pre-release, like, uh, completely re- uninstall and replay, like, we're sorry, please don't factor that into the review, because we're going to get that patched by day one. Yeah. And the yeah. IGN review would have been a lot more positive, probably, because they would have been willing to forgive that issue because they experienced it pre-release. And, like, that ultimately hurt Bethesda. And I don't know why Bethesda, of all companies, is the first to do it, because their games usually get consistent 8 through 10s. Like, they get between an 8 and a 10 out of 10 on every game they release, like, always 80 to 100 on Metacritic or whatever. Why on earth do they... Why are they afraid of press? If there's any company that, like, is consistent enough that I don't think they need to fear press, it's Bethesda. I think it was when Doom came out and they didn't send out copies beforehand Mm. and people were worried about it because the multiplayer beta was uh, underwhelming. Um, And then it comes out and turns out to be this incredible game. And I think maybe their PR department got a little bit drunk on the power and thought, we don't need to send out copies early for any of our games. They're all going to be fantastic. And that's not the case. Yeah, everyone now has the precedent of if we, like, Bethesda isn't sending out review copy because they don't need to because their games are amazing, therefore, you know. Mm. And that's, uh, I, I really hope that the the IGN, that, that IGN Pro review puts Bethesda off of doing this in future, or that it just from the outside deters other PR companies from trying it in case that happens to them. Mm. Yeah, I'd hope so. Um, yeah, that kind of leads me on nicely then, um, just talking about rating systems and things like that. How do you feel about what is seemingly the default standard rating system of a 7 to 10? Uh, so this this is a thing I've gotten a lot of flack for recently. Um, since Let's Play Video Games came around, I have been trying to use the full 10-point scale, just myself on a personal level, with five being mediocre or average, mm-hmm. and working my way from there. If something is below average, that might be a three or a four, because it is worse than the middle of the grading system. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like something that is good, that is like a little above average, it's like, oh, that's interesting, that's above average, might be a six, because that doesn't mean it's bad, it is better than than the middle mm. and it is frustrating to see people aggress like because of this attempt to use the whole scale and to use five as a midpoint i will sometimes give games scores that are considerably lower than the metacritic average because of how they weight on my my view of a, a rating system yeah. a good example i believe being a ukulele which i think i gave like a four out of ten mm-hmm. something like that because like it wasn't terrible but it was it was very average in a lot of ways and i was often just a bit bored with it and it was very middle of the road but then on top of that there were some things that really frustrated me and it's like okay that's average but a little bit below there it's not broken but it's a little it's it's a bit below average Mm -hmm. it's average with problems 
I gave it a 4 out of 10, and I got lambasted online because, like, oh, everyone else has given it a 7. I'm like, well, I think it's below average, and average, like, on, on a scale is the middle. It's below the middle of the scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's frustrating. Like, I, I get why it happens, but... Uh. It's like when... Um, do you remember when um, Philip Collar over at um, Polygon gave The Last of Us a 7.5 out of 10? Yeah. And everywhere else was giving it 9s or perfect 10s. Um, and he was getting crucified on the internet and people were accusing Polygon of having a... <laughs> A Microsoft bias and hating Sony exclusive <laughs> games and all this nonsense. It's like the score he gave it is halfway between average and perfect. Yeah, like, like this is this is a that's good, a good game. score. This is a good yeah. game. Like I, and even even if he did give it a score that said it was terrible, if he gave it a four out of ten, if he backed it up with his opinion. His opinion's totally valid. He's allowed to feel however he wants about a game, and knowing that someone doesn't like a game as much as someone else is really useful consumer information, because it tells you if you value these things in a game, you might not like this game as much as everyone else. It's one of the problems I find with review scores. Like, There's there's, uh, plenty of plus points to having a score, um, but one of the big negatives is that sometimes... Um, not so much on specialist sites, but you know, places like IGN, GameSpot, and places like that. Um, some of the bigger sites, people will concentrate on the score only and ignore the body of the actual mm-hmm. review. They'll load up the review, fl- scroll to the bottom of the page, see what the score is. If it's a score they disagree with, and they start hammering the reviewer in the in the comments, and don't actually read the body of the review. And if they did, they more often than not be like, okay. Um, they made a good argument as to why they gave the game this score. Or they'll they'll single in on a single line from the review and be like, you docked it this many points for this complaint. Yes. Because like, the big one I got was, I think I gave, uh, what was it, Persona 5 an 8 out of 10. Where I was like, it's a great mm-hmm. game. It's an 8 out of 10. It's a great, it's a great game. Yeah. I think it's flawed. Um, you know, I don't like that you can go like 30 minutes between... Uh, checkpoints and there are enemies that can one hit kill the only member of your party who's not allowed to die and if they one hit kill him you just are out and have to redo that 30 minutes I don't like that but one complaint I made was you know I played the Persona series on handhelds I started with Persona 4 Golden on the Vita and worked backwards to me the the glacially slow pace of some of the content of that game works better on a handheld you know, I'm more willing to sit and read that like on a commute rather than sat in front of my TV. Sure. I I am critical of the fact that this game would be better if I could play it portably in some regard. That is a thing that I feel is missing from this Persona game or that this Persona game's pacing suffers and should be more criticised because it's on a home console. And everyone wrote that off as you dot this game two points because it wasn't on the Switch. <laughs> I was like, I mentioned both the Switch and the Vita to make my point of yeah. I've been spoiled recently on this idea of, you know, taking games outside the house and here's my background and context but yeah. no, you, you it was a perfect 10 game and the fact it wasn't on the Switch made you take two points off of it I am a self-confessed Persona fanboy I bought the special edition of Persona 5, it's not a perfect game I absolutely love it. I paid 120 hours of it, and I love yeah. them all. 
Except for the ones yeah. that I didn't love that I'm really critical of. And yeah. I would have preferred if I could have played that on a Vita. <laughs> yeah, and you can't give a game a perfect score if there are caveats, uh, if, the, if you have some problems with I, it. I somewhat disagree there. Um, like, I gave Breath of the Wild a 10 out of 10, and I acknowledge it has caveats. For me, I gave that a 10 out of 10 because... I usually just don't engage well with that genre. Um, open, like mm-hmm. giant open world games like that. I usually, my urge is to just run through the core plot and not see anything else and get it over and done with. So I know what it is and played it and can talk about it and I'm done. Mm. And Breath of the Wild for me was the first one that I wanted to go exploring, that I felt that sense of adventure, that I felt the desire to go off the beaten track and find those things that were out in the world. Mm-hmm. And taking a genre I usually don't enjoy and making it something that I put, I could have completed it in probably 50 hours and I put 140 hours into it. Like, mm. I thought that was a thing that really deserved to be put at the top of a pedestal and said, this is a really impressive game. It's not perfect, but it is Mm -hmm. impressive enough that I think it deserves the highest praise I can put upon it. It, I don't know. That's that's just how I look at at like a 10. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Because I don't think there's ever a game that's perfect, but I think there are games that you experience. Super Mario World on the snows. (laughs) (laughs) I I think there are games that you look at and think this game is something special and I want to highlight that. Yeah. Sure. An awful lot of complaints about review scores and things always come down to whether or not it's an objective perspective or a subjective perspective. And for whatever reason, an awful lot of people expect an objective perspective um, <laughs> on gaming reviews. And, you know, it's really, it's just not possible. You know, When, when people ask for an objective, uh, objective view on a game in a review, they're not actually asking for an objective view. They're looking for their view to be parroted. They view their perspective as the default and therefore the apolitical view and the one that is objective. Surely the only way you could objectively review a game is if you just listed off a tick sheet of facts. This game costs $39.99. It lasts roughly 30 hours. If you want a brilliant example of this, this was a few years ago. I think uh, Jim Sterling did an objective review of, I think it was Final Fantasy XIII, and it was basically mm-hmm. that. It was a list of things <laughs> in the game. And like that's yeah. the thing is, as soon as you say, like, I enjoyed, that's subjective. As, yep. as soon as you say, I thought the art style was, that's subjective. As soon as you say mm. the, con- the controls were responsive, that's subjective. Someone else might not find them responsive because of how they play. Or like mm. the, con- the combat system is good nope that's an opinion subjective well that's the thing it's a review is just an yeah. opinion and you can't have an objective no. opinion that's an like, the way that reviews work is you get a variety of people to experience something you look at what mm. the most common opinion is and say like okay most people feel this way about it however these outliers exist let's see why they disagreed with the majority opinion because mm-hmm. if that reviewer has a similar background to me maybe i won't enjoy it as much as this consensus that's why a spread of reviews is useful it's useful to have ones that score above the average and below the average so you know if you're going to love or hate this game compared to the average experience yeah well it's even you know as a gaming fan and sort of reading reviews and things you gravitate towards sites that review games in the same way that you would but 
for an awful lot of people they seem directly to go to people who they don't agree with or have completely separate gaming tastes and then as you say completely lambasting them because of those separate tastes and you sort of think Mm. what are you doing you know you're not making anybody's life any better by criticizing me about a you know, a review that I wrote about a game that I didn't enjoy, but you probably mm-hmm. would. And if you went and read reviews of other people who have similar tastes, you would agree with them. Stop annoying me. You know, find, it's yeah, find it's the rev- yeah, find the reviews that you usually agree with, and follow their reviews because the chances are that your views will line up somewhat with theirs. Gaming history is now becoming quite a large breadth of games and even looking at the number of games that are released on Steam in a week is usually sort of very close to 100 if not more than 100 nearly every week and not every games critic is going to be able to play every game. In fact there's an awful lot of younger games critics here coming through now who you could probably list a top 10 of some of the greatest games you know that regularly feature on you know top 100s of greatest games that they have not played and to judge them unfairly on anything they then write because they have not played these games is just ridiculous you know it's maybe a little bit different for say films you can sit down you can watch a film in two to three hours or whatever and you know you can knock through the classics in you know um sort of you know a couple of months or whatever um but for games you're just not going to be able to do that so you're never going to have the same breadth of experience um of playing different games that somebody else will have purely because of your age your circumstances the amount of money that you had available to spend on games at any one time and uh you know to judge people on the things that they haven't been able to do and then because of the way they then review games is it's daft you know it's it's an unfair way of looking um, at re- reviewing games. Yeah, video games also have this whole thing tied in with them where they are... Where movies are just um, tonally or uh, narrative genre distinct from each other, video games on top of that have mechanics. Yeah. And those are going to vary from person to person into in what ones they enjoy physically interacting with and how those then overlap with those narrative genres. And there are so many weird points of intersection. Uh, there's the fact that video games are far worse curated than movies are. Um, some classic games can't be experienced now like there are modern games that vanish out of existence um like you can always go back and experience the classics um a great example is like someone who grows up five years from now and wants to go into game design or games criticism doesn't really have the option to experience um pt yeah and to experience like here is this very effective horror experience in a very limited environment that was used to surprise tease this big thing and how like that kind of marketing was done together. That's something that like is locked down to a limited number of systems that may never be archivable properly. Mm. Yeah, there's so many factors that make video games like it's it's difficult to have any two critics have the same cultural background or even just enjoy interacting with the same experiences. There are really interesting conversations that go on in academic video game archival spaces. Like there are universities that are dedicated to working out how to archive this kind of material. 
And mm. the questions that they raise that are really interesting are things like, are you legally allowed to go into the game code to, like, let's say for something like Destiny, set up a private server and convince the game to connect to that instead so that you can emulate the experience of playing Destiny, but then you get into, mm-hmm. like, by, you know, messing around with this game to get it to run on this new server. Is that somehow inherently different to the experience of playing it with real people? Mm. Um, Are you archiving something that is an accurate representation of the game as a static object? As society Mm. moves on, like, let's say, 100 years from now, if you've still got that archived version of Destiny, how will the different social dynamics 100 years from now affect the perspective of this archived piece of medium uh, media that because it was online relied on social interaction. There's a lot mm-hmm. of really difficult questions that like academics don't have good answers for with video games because of, because of their online nature, their uh, interactivity nature and the way that um, just, just so many factors of the way that video games exist, make them difficult to keep in any kind of static fashion. Yeah. You even have like on the, the smaller scale, because video games getting patched is now like a very regular thing. How, what, what state do you archive a game in? Do you archive it as the day one experience? Do you update like archive it as whatever the final tweak to it was? Do you have to archive every variation? Uh, if a game gets updated, and you can't get the old patched version, like, is that a thing that you can physically even access if you wanted to archive that specific version? Yeah, it's, it's, video game archival is a really messy subject with no good answers right now. There's things like, you know, whenever Nintendo finally get around to turning off the WiiWare servers, um, yeah. from the Wii that are still available on the Wii U, and uh, to purchase games and everything through, that's a massive catalogue of games that were only ever exclusively available through WiiWare mm-hmm. and on hardware that is difficult to emulate because of the um, the Wii remote controls and everything like that. Yeah. Um, it's going to be kind of sad whenever those games are actually, or the servers won't have your all turned off. Okay, uh, we will move on to sort of our regular uh, little podcast segments and things. is just about right. Um, Mark, have you picked up anything recently? Oh my god, have I ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've bought far too many games since... Cause it's been a while since I've been on an episode where we talked about games, and I've bought too many to actually admit to, so I'll just talk about three of them. Yeah, three of the games are the ones I'm going to talk about when we talk about what we've been playing, so I won't mention those now, but I picked up Next Machina. If you like a sort of, you know, twin-stick shooter bullet hell nonsense, uh, if you liked Resogun, um or any house smart games really then it's more of that but even better mm. i picked up legend of zelda twilight princess hd on the wii u because i got fed up of waiting for the wolf link amiibo to drop in price so i thought <laughs> i'll just buy the whole thing because i like that game and it comes with yeah. the soundtrack as well and uh yeah played through a, a little bit of that and it, it's still great it's just it's not one of the best loved Zelda games, but uh, I it's still good. I yeah, I still think it's a really good game. 
did you end up paying what 42 quid or whatever for 42 it, or? quid yeah yeah but it really hasn't dropped down an awful lot i think smith's whenever they were having their sort of vague wii u clear out had it down to 15 but copies did not last long as they don't usually in smith this is nintendo though their stuff never drops in price they no yeah yeah but specifically anything to do with a Legend of Zelda amiibo at the moment is just ridiculous. So just the yeah. Wolf Link amiibo on its own was 30-something quid. Yeah, so they're, they're ridiculous. Yeah, even second-hand. It's, like, yeah. I don't know why they don't just produce more of them. I think you still can't pre-order amiibo on their website, but if you want to go and buy them directly through their website, they strictly limit you to only one per person. But yeah. uh, that doesn't stop other retailers from letting you buy multiples of them. Mm. Uh, and then selling them on for a massive profit on eBay. Uh, yeah, the, the other game I bought is uh, I'm really, really interested in playing Fortnite when it comes out on Early Access later this month. Uh, so I picked up the uh, Founders Pack for that, like the cheapest, cheapest version of the Founders Pack I could get because uh, I don't want to wait until sometime in 2018 to play that game because it looks really, really fun. Bought a few other games as well, but I'll talk about those when we come to what we've been playing. That's all right. Laura, have you bought anything recently? I've not bought much recently. Um, I, I know the Steam sale's been going on. I've been trying to pick up like a couple of bits that I'd like wanted to get around to and just like not put enough time into. So I played mm. Darkest Dungeon, but I don't know where I played it because I don't have a copy on Steam. And I played it when it was first in early access. So maybe I owned it on a different Steam account or something, but... I realized like Darkest Dungeon's been out for ages and when I first played it it was uh it was in that kind of state where you could play to a certain point and you just hit like a solid roadblock and you couldn't go mm. any further and I was like I should I should probably go Ooh. back to this so I realized I actually you know what might have been I may have been given a review code which occasionally they'll you know they'll un- undo them when it's like reviews done take your code back um, I bought yep. Darkest Dungeon and I've been really enjoying it. Um, I'm glad mm. I waited till it was a complete experience to really try and sink into it because I think it's the kind of experience that you don't want to like jump back into midway through and try and remember what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like £7 or something in the, the Steam sale, which is like, that, that's a price I'm, I was happy with for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. I got around to playing Just Cause 3, which I again picked up in the Steam sale for something like £7. And mm. it is an enjoyable sandbox that I will probably play for like three or four hours and stop. I don't see myself playing more than that, but it's one I just like hadn't put the time into properly. So that, that's all I've been doing this Steam sale is picking up games that I never put enough time into and... Being like, I'll give this mm. another chance while things are a bit quiet and being a bit so-so on them. Well, just Course 3 seems just, from what from people I've spoken to who've played, it's just a, just a fun playground to have access to when you just want to muck about yeah. for a couple of hours. And- exactly. Nothing serious. Just mess around for a bit. Oh, there is one other thing I picked up uh, during the Steam sale that I'm so glad I did. Slime Rancher, which is uh, £10 mm. at the moment, I think, which is like... It's, it's like no, a third off or something, but um, I've been meaning to get around to Slime Rancher for a while. It's it's another one of those where it's like, it's adorable. It looks wonderful. I don't want to get this while it's in early access. I want to wait until it's out. And yeah, uh, it's really adorable. And I like just having my farm of happy little blobs. <laughs> <laughs> it does look very, very nice. And again, it's one of the ones I have on my wish list, but 
I will hold off um, for a while yeah. anyway. So I, I would have held off, but I was just... I needed light-hearted things to play for a bit that didn't require much thinking. For myself, then, I took advantage of the PayPal offer that um, they were doing with Steam, which was if you bought £25 of Steam credit, yep. they actually give you a fiver off. So it was only really £20, so that was quite nice. And so with that, I bought a reasonable amount of games. Let's say I picked up Lords of the Fallen, Game of the Year edition, uh, Death Skidmarks, Pixel Junk Shooter Ultimate, Virginia, No Man's Sky. Um, so that was my £20 taken care of, and I think I spent a little bit of change possibly on trading cards and things just to <laughs> finish off a couple of badges because, you know, Steam is sneaky like that and giving you other ways of spending money. Um a couple of other things then that I picked up, um, because it's obviously a Steam sale and Steam sales have their own little gimmicks that um, work through the client of collecting different things or doing different things, they are doing a sticker book this year. Um, so you do set different actions and things, and also if you go through your discovery queue, you end up getting a trading card as well. So I've deliberately not looked at any of that because I don't want anything to incentivize me spending more money. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I've managed to... Um, I, I got a couple of trading cards because of the money that I spent, um, but otherwise I was just going through the actions that it asked me to do, going through the discovery queue and what have you, and then getting a trading card at the end of it. So I got my one badge um, for that, so that I'm just staying on the level one. I'm sure there's other people who keep boosting them up past level one and things like that. Um, but for any additional cards then, I just automatically sold them on. And through that, I managed to get the 60th kilometer um, for 9p. Um, which is, from the looks of it, is a fairly well-rated uh, visual novel. Uh, I, I should really be taking tips from you then, on how to get cheap games. I'm, I'm, I'm spending way too much, it seems. <laughs> yeah. And then the other game that I picked up, I just before we came on uh, the show, I went through the Steam thing and did uh, what it asked me to do. Go, went through the Discovery queue and what have you, and got an extra couple of cards. And managed to sell those just before we came on, and I had 39p sitting in my basket, or in my uh, credit, so I spent it on Hyperspace Invaders 2 Pixel Edition. <laughs> For 39p, it's worth picking up, and it's, you know, it's money that I generated through selling trading cards to people who like buying trading cards, like mm. myself. <laughs> um, the other kind of freebie that I picked up recently has been chrono.gg website um, usually do sort of a daily deal um, which lasts for 24 hours but they have recently started doing a little like coin collector if you log in um, click on a little coin they give you some coins to put in and every three or four weeks or whatever they put a couple of new games up that you can buy with the coins that you've generated so for, um, I had sitting maybe about 4,000 coins or whatever from sort of daily logins and things. So I picked up Cosmicoria um, on there. Again, then it's just a freebie. It's currently sitting on the Steam sale for £1.74. So that's not a bad way freebie um, for doing that. Uh, the last two things then are ones that I've picked up for the Gear VR, um, just because everybody seems to be doing sales at the minute, so Oculus are no different and have been running a, a sale on the Oculus VR um, for the Gear VR. Uh, so I picked up Esper and Land's End um, for probably in around £4 in total. Uh, for those two. I've also recently picked up maybe a couple of little Android games just because they've been cheap but I can't remember exactly which ones 
Um, so I've actually been quite naughty this month. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, 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 the sales are so tempting. Mm. I was actually doing, I was talking to other people on Twitter there and thinking that there's definitely an article to be written about Steam sales and about how much game can spending 39p get you. Because as of the current Steam sale, there are 901 games, um, which probably includes some DLC and things, under 40p on the Steam sale. 901. As a consumer, how on earth do you try and navigate that um, to discover new games? And even as a sort of games critic, there's just no way that you could play all of those and try and recommend them and things like that. Um, so... I may have an article coming out probably, <laughs> I dare say it will take an awful lot of research <laughs> to go through um, 901 games and it might not even be ready for like the Christmas Steam sale. <laughs> There's an awful lot of, okay, 901 games is an absolutely ridiculous amount of games, you know, that's a lifetime's worth of games um, for nearly everybody, I would say. And But there must be some little gems in there. Um, that you could pick up for less than the price of a Freddo bar now, probably. Freddo bars are more than 40p, aren't they? I think they are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, scary. Yeah. Um, so yes, um, I'd love to see, well, I'm going to try and write something about how much game you can get for less than 40p. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, let's see how that goes. <laughs> Right then, we will move on to recently played. Laura, what have you been recently playing? I've been doing a bunch of like traveling and things this last week, so I've not had a lot of time to be playing things inside the house. Weirdly, the things I've been playing most of are both Pokemon games on mobile. <laughs> I've been playing a bunch of Magikarp Jump and Pokemon Go. Yeah. So Magikarp Jump, I'm coming up towards the end of. I've almost done all of the content in it. I've not spent any money yet. Um, I'm aware <laughs> mechanically it is basically just a clicker game. Like there is no skill involved. It is yeah. login when it tells you that all of your things have recharged, activate the things to get the points, do the training, which is completely random as to whether it'll be useful or not, and make your magic up jump really high. I like the, the, the narrative wrappings around it, that at least at the beginning was what got me into it, this idea of taking this Pokemon that's usually seen as useless it's only there useful to <laughs> to like it's only useful for what it becomes it's not useful for what it is and setting a game in this town where they're like no we root for the underdog here we want to see the best magic up we love magic ups magic up be the best magic up you can be exceed your limits be amazing and i really like that narrative um conceit at the beginning I've mainly stuck playing it because as someone with Asperger's, I found it really useful as a stimming tool, which is the idea of self-stimulating uh, behaviors, which basically is doing repetitive things in order to deal with outside stresses and senses. And as a game that is just very lighthearted and predictable and sweet with this nice narrative wrapping, but is also very repetitive and predictable. It's worked wonders for me as a like as just a thing to do to not get stressed about social situations I've been in. Okay. So that's been fun. And I've been playing the update to Pokemon Go that added raid battles because 
I've been meeting a bunch of people doing raid battles because <laughs> I, I don't know if either of you are still playing Pokemon Go or ever played it or care about these raid battles at all. I am still playing it, yes. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know if it's the same for locationally where you are, but in the area where I'm at, every time that one of those like egg, eggs pops up on a gym and it's like, okay, in X number of hours, there's going to be a, um, a raid here. Mm. Everyone is just watching out for them goes to the place like three or four minutes before a raid starts there'll be a group of five or six people there ready and we're just doing raid battles it's just been really nice to bump into like strangers playing pokemon go trying to catch things together yeah the pokemon go update is i think very good for the game um raid battles aside even just the the redesign and repurposing of the gyms um has been an awful lot better Mm. um purely because you know, before the redesign, you would see a gym with maybe, you know, of an opposing team with maybe 10 Pokemon in it, and you'd just go, no, it's going to take far too long for me to sit and battle all of those, so I'm just not going to even bother. But now, at least, you know, you have a, a small team of six to try and get through, and depending on their current heart levels, what have you, it might be quite easy to get through all six of those and then take over the gym. Um, it's definitely for myself, my wife, and my son, um, who are also playing it intermittently and things. It's made our interest in gyms a lot more, and it's not no longer just about getting the Pokemon. Um, although my wife is very proud of the fact that she has all currently available non-region specific Pokemons in generation. <laughs> I've got one. the region specific ones too. Yes, I know you did. You managed to do it in what a space of forty um, hours or something. Yeah, worse like I went to Australia with a layover in Hong Kong and got like those the Asia and Australia <laughs> ones there. Uh, the Taurus, I think I got it. Gamer X. Um, the, the the change they made to gyms that I really like is the change from uh, in terms of like the coins you get rewarded for for the in-game shop. Yes. You used to get rewarded them based on the number of like you could only have one Pokemon in each gym and it was the number of Pokemon you currently had in gyms. So to get a yep. high payout, you had to take over multiple gyms no matter how long you were in your gym for. And they've now changed mm. it to the longer your Pokemon is in a gym, the more points you get for that Pokemon. Like, it takes into account how long the Pokemon you put in there stayed there. And it mm-hmm. it does benefit people who have good, strong Pokemon that are likely to survive for a while. Mm-hmm. And being like, yeah, we're going to reward you because your Pokemon stuck it out for 10 hours. Yeah. It's an automatic system now as well, um, so you don't have to go in and manually collect the coins and things. You just get the coins back whenever you um, your Pokemon actually gets returned to you um, after being defeated yeah, from the Yeah, and it's gym. not one of those now where if they get defeated and you hadn't collected yet, it's like, nah, you lost it, you didn't collect them while you had it in the thing. Yeah, I think we've worked out that it's in around maybe three days, roughly. You can get, what, 50 coins uh, whenever they return to you. And that's a nice little thing because, you know, you could reasonably easily get three Pokemon into a gym and then over the course of the next three days get 50 coins back from each of those and then, you know, you've got enough to buy yourself an incubator um, for whatever eggs and things. It's The in-game currency is definitely a lot more generous with this gym system than it was with the previous version. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Also, just whenever you were mentioning Magikarp Jump there, um, <laughs> there is a song on YouTube about how useless <laughs> Magikarp is <laughs> and how it's the 
you know, the worst Magicka or the worst Pokemon and the most useless and everything. I actually, whenever we've got a little uh, review of Magikarp Jump up on our blog, and I actually interspersed parts of my review with lyrics from that song. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. Just because the, the, the idea of making a game out of um, based on Magikarp is... Yeah, it's just so ridiculous, but it does work so well. It's made and so sweet and sincerely, though. Like this, like it is, the, yeah. the, there's there's a nice yeah, little touch. The first time that I accidentally evolved my one of my Magikarp into a Gyarados, and they were like, "It's cool, but it's not a Magikarp. We we like we like the underdogs here." <laughs> and they made me retire my Gyarados because it wasn't a, like a cool underdog Magikarp. I was like, "This is yeah. nice. <laughs> Let's appreciate Magikarp for what they can do. They're good at splashing. Be the best splasher you can be." Yeah. There was also the nice design choice of the fact that the main character is androgynous, almost non-binary, um, in its design, which was really nice. Yeah, and the game explicitly calls out that it's not gendering the character. I think it's every time the Nugget yep. guy turns up, he's like, boy, yeah. girl, and it's just never addressed. So I'm like, yeah, not not making characters binary in their presentation. Woo. <laughs> yeah, and such a simple thing to do. It's amazing that it hasn't really been done to a big extent before. Yeah, I think it's definitely easier with 2D simplified art, but it's a nice touch. Okay, Mark, what have you been playing? Our list of games, again, far too long to mention, so I'm just going to talk about three of them. I picked up The Crew because it was £8 on the PlayStation Store, and it's one of those games that's like, I've just been a bit fascinated by what it is, because it's, it's, it's such an ambitious racing game, but also a mess, and so I've, I've kept tabs on it, and I've thought, right, when it drops below a tenner, I'll pick it up. Mm-hmm. And so, finally reached that sweet point where I was like, mm, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll splurge on it. So the crew is... <laughs> It's like your, you know, your typical Need for Speed style arcade racer with a dumb storyline that's somehow even more dumb than the average Need for Speed storyline. But it's it's weird. It's 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 an MMO car PG. Have so, you trademarked that, or is that something you've read somewhere? <laughs> no, I think that's. I don't know whether that's what Ubisoft officially were calling it, or whether that's just something okay. that reviewers started calling it. But it's referred to as a car PG because it's like you have vehicles that you level up and you grind missions for loot basically up you know Mm. upgraded parts for your car and it has like a set storyline and then when you reach the end of it there's like an end game thing with like the equivalent the racing equivalent of raids the whole thing's set on sort of like a compressed version of the entire of the continental united states it's about 80 miles across but it includes like uh, New York, Detroit, Chicago, uh, Miami, uh, various cities in like the Midwest, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, um, Las Vegas, so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and the map's big enough that it's manageable. Uh, sorry, small enough that it's manageable, but big enough that, like, when you're on a long race, you get, like, a nice, smooth transition in, like, uh, environment. So you can start off on, like, some of the longer races. You can be up in, like, the snowy mountains in the north and then drive through the Midwest and end up in, like, the bayou uh, down in Louisiana, um, that New Orleans sort of way. The end game stuff is, like, really fascinating. 
and there's like there's a every month there's an ongoing community challenge where uh you like take part in a multitude of different events based out in the Bonneville Salt Flats and based on how well you do compared to the community you get better loots like better cars better parts or whatever out of it one of the things that I was most interested in picking it up for is like I was always a sucker uh, back in the old Gran Turismo days of the like the endurance races mm-hmm. like uh, the six hour races and four hour races and, and things like that like me and a, a mate when I was at university used to do those races in shifts like we'd do like an hour each <laughs> and then just pass the controller uh, so the other person could take a break uh, one of the races in um, the end game section of the crew is called a landmark race or something like that it stops off every single landmark on the map it's mm. a 500 kilometer race and it takes it says an estimated length is four hours uh, oh. apparently you can get it done in about three and a half and i really really want to do it because <laughs> um, i'm a glutton for punishment um it's it's dumb it's you know uh, a simplified arcade racer it's got some weird problems with odd ai behavior and really really strong rubber banding like mario kart levels of rubber banding um mm. which shouldn't be present in that sort of racer and because it's always online if the servers drop you know drop which because they're ubisoft servers they do quite regularly then you just can't play it at all it's the sort of game that i'm uh that i've always had a bit of soft spot for something that's like ambitious something that tries something different that totally doesn't nail it but at least it tried Mm. um so i salute it for that uh, and it was eight pounds well spent uh one of the other games we've been playing is elite dangerous finally made its way onto playstation 4 it's been um out in well, the full release on PC is about two years old, and it was available in early access for a good few years before that, I think. Mm. And it's been on Xbox One for quite a while as well. So it's finally made its way over onto to PS4. And it's one of those games where I, I don't have an Xbox One, and I don't have a PC that's powerful enough to play it. So I've just been watching it at a distance and just been uh, just fascinated by this game and wanting mm. to play it for ages. So as soon as I saw it was available, I was like, yep, I'm having that. Picked that up uh, and fell in love with it so much that I actually splurged and bought myself a Thrustmaster hands-on throttle and stick to play it properly. It's a weird game. People were drawing comparisons between it and No Man's Sky when No Man's Sky came out because Mm -hmm. in some ways it's kind of similar... Uh, but mostly not. Uh, for, you can't like get out of your ship, walk around on planets. You can't even land on any planets that have an atmosphere. Uh, you will. You can land on like rocky planets and drive around in a buggy. Uh, but it, the, the vast majority of it is just spent in space. Um, mm. But it's like super hardcore. So like, I'll just give like an example of like what will happen in a mission. So you're in a space station. You pick up a mission to go and mine some materials and take them to another space station to sell. So you have to exit the dock up onto the uh, up onto the landing pad disengage from the landing pad take off and then very carefully making sure you abide by the speed limit leave the space station and then stay within the speed limit until you're far enough away from it to not be what's known as mass locked calculate a hyperspace jump to the system you need to go to warm up the engine make the jump and then once you're in the system, find out where the, the materials are that you're going to mine on like a asteroid belt around a planet or whatever. Fly to it at light speed, um, but then like very carefully making sure, like slowing down as you approach to make sure that you are traveling under a specific speed when you reach a certain distance away so you can drop out of light speed safely 
locate some rocks on it that have got the mineral you want, use your mining laser to, to knock chunks off it, and then you can't just hoover it up. You have to open the cargo bay at the bottom and like actually match the speed of, of the, the material that's floating through space and then slightly increase your speed and then line up your open cargo bay at the bottom so that you scoop it up. Uh, until you've got enough materials that you want. Program your refinery to refine them into the, to whatever it is you need. Find where it is you need to go to drop it off. Do your hyperspace jump to get there. Do the whole thing with the light speed and slowing down to make sure that you jump out of that space station at the right speed. Get in contact with the space station. Request permission to dock. Then making sure you abide by the speed limit. Fly through the <laughs> very narrow entrance of this space station, which is rotating. Um, locate the landing pad that you need to land on and then with no assistance um, draw up above the landing pad and then slowly uh, come down on it make sure your your um, landing gear is out uh, if all of that sounds boring to you then it's not going to be the sort of game for you and I will f- fully admit that that sounded very very boring when I explained it but <laughs> I was I, just about to say that's not a game that's a sci-fi background character job simulator <laughs> it's basically Euro Truck Simulator in space uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I always like mocked people who liked playing those games I thought, why, why the hell would you want to drive a truck around seems so so boring but everyone would tell me it's like no no it's actually it's like you know it's quite relaxing it's quite meditative I was like that sounds, that sounds stupid um Elite Dangerous is basically the same thing in space, and it is really kind of relaxing, actually, to play. <laughs> um, you have to think quite a lot about maneuverability and, you know, managing your power systems and working out how the economy works and things like that. Uh, but I'm just hooked on it already. I'm, I'm having a whale of time playing it. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fully sold on that. As I should be, because I spent 60 quid on the bloody controller for it. But yeah, anyway. Well, I was going to say, Laura has her trucking um, show on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Trucking, I find fine, because as long as I can do the accelerator, the brake, and like the the turning, I don't have to think about any of the other fiddly stuff, except for occasionally turning the lights or windscreen wipers on. And it's just like a nice, relaxed (laughs) excuse to just drive across, across nice scenery. It's visually stunning. And so you see, considering that you're spending most of your time flying through, you know, hundreds of light years of nothing, uh, there's a lot of really pretty things to look at on the way. And as someone who's always been fascinated by space, it ticks all of my boxes. The final game I got dragged into, partially against my will, but I didn't put up much of a fight. My girlfriend Zoe is a massive Final Fantasy fan. I'm a massive Final Fantasy fan as well, but she's like an insane fan she just absolutely loves the series so we were flicking around youtube the other weekend um, trying to decide what to watch and um saw the fall and rise of final fantasy 14 uh and it's a game i'd never really checked out uh at least i thought i didn't hadn't checked it out apparently at some point i played uh the open beta on ps4 but i don't remember any of that um zoe played it quite a lot on ps3 and then hadn't played it in a while um we watched the documentary and she was like, I'm going to start playing it again. Um, I've never really gotten into an MMO before. I tried getting into to World of Warcraft, but didn't have anyone to really play with. Uh, and I've only lasted a few hours in that before I thought, I sacked off just thinking, no, this is just not my thing. Um, played a little bit of Elder Scrolls Online, but I've never played any uh, like you know other MMOs, even remotely seriously. But I am fully on board with, with Final Fantasy XIV. It's just... 
It's an incredibly accessible MMO game. Most of the players are playing it on um, PC. Because it's a Japanese game and PC gaming is not massive in Japan, uh, it feels like it was built from the ground up to be played on a controller. So mm-hmm. the whole interface just works perfectly on a controller. Aside from like the usual sort of like first few hours uh, like info dump, um, masses of tutorials, like the first few hours I was completely lost. Um, after that, once I got to grips with it, it just everything makes sense, and I'm just having uh, so much fun in it. Uh, like it's it helps that it's an MMO set in you know a Final Fantasy world, and I just love that series, and I yeah. I love the worlds that that Square Enix create. Um, have either of you two played Final Fantasy fourteen at all? I am yeah. playing it currently. I'm trying to do a review, but I'm a little bit taking my time with it. I don't want to rush through. Yeah. Um. Oh, it's immense. Mm. There's just there seems to be so much to it. Like, um, apparently you can pay an amount of money to like buy your way up to level sixty and auto complete all the story missions. Although, why do that? I don't know. Well, the reason I assume is they've just overhauled a bunch of the uh, the UI stuff so that it's more accessible. And if your friends have been playing it before and you're like, now it's accessible enough, I want to play with my friends. It's a way to yeah. jump up and play with your friends if you're not too stressed about the story. You just want to do the mechanics of playing the game with your friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the situation I was in. It was like when I jumped in, like uh, my girlfriend and one of her work colleagues who were playing it together for back on PS3 days, um, they'd got like level 50 plus characters um, when I started up. But they were like, we'll just roll a second character and play through it again with you. So The update they've recently done to like overhauling the UI class by class has made a really big difference because mm. now rather than doing so much stat management, you've got visual indicators that are different per class to highlight like, this is how you should be playing the class and this is what you're trying to fill up. And it does a very good job of highlighting this is how you can tell if you're effectively doing what your class is meant to do. Which yeah, is really nice. Yeah. It's it's a nice way to like mess around mm. with a class and have a good idea of if you're doing things right. They're damn good. Yeah, it's bloody good. Out of those three, Mark, um, any particular recognize no, them for a lapse gamer? Absolutely none of them. <laughs> none of them. It's all like no, oh, they're all massive time sinks. But if at uh, a push, maybe the crew, because um, you can play that like one mission at a time, or whatever. But mm. still, it's it's a it's a big open world you know it encourages grinding races over and over again to try and get a better result to get better loot for your car or whatever elite is just a time sink complete like Mm -hmm. one mission can take an hour um and you can't pause it even if you're playing solo you can't pause it because it's an always online world because Mm -hmm. what players do in the game affects the economy uh it affects the um the market values of products it, it affects the standing of different um factions within the game so yeah you can't even like pause it and go and get yourself a drink <laughs> unless you're parked somewhere um mm. yeah and final fantasy 14 i mean it's an mmo so no yeah. none of those i would recommend for a labs yeah. gamer fair enough <laughs> Okay, um, my games then I'll rattle through fairly quickly. Um, I've been playing a handful of games on um, Android on my phone, uh, so I'll rhyme off the names quickly. It's Cubics, Aqueduct, and Touchdowners, and Flipping Legend. Um, flip, yeah, Flipping Legend was recommended by a listener of the show Gur uh, at Gurdog72. Um, 
Cubics and Aqueducts are both little puzzle games. Um, Aqueducts is sort of a Roman-esque, um, all drawn in sort of the, I want to say sort of pastel style of something like Monument Valley and what have you, but without the sort of Escher um, influences and things for Monument uh, Valley. Mm. But quite lovely. Um, Cubics is a little puzzle game where you move a cube around the board trying to get rid of all the white tiles before hitting your end goal. Uh, Touchdowners is the most recent mobile game from Colin Lane and uh, one of his colleagues. And as I have said in a previous tweet, it is to American football what foosball is to ordinary football or soccer as people refer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, on... Uh, Android, or well, on a mobile device, and is just good fun, even if it definitely depends a little bit more, a lot more on luck than it does skill, (laughs) but it's still good fun. It's the fact that it also supports two players um, Mm. on whatever tablet or um, mobile device that you're playing on is quite nice. And Flipping Legend is a new game by Noodle Cake Studios, um, which is a interesting little game where you sort of hop your way up a, a a board as such, um, using a whatever character you pick and who has different um, sort of combat techniques and things, and it's it's good fun. Um, I'll talk more about all four of those. I'll hopefully have a review up on the blog, um, just as part of my new monthly mobile review roundup. Um, so hopefully that'll be up um, sort of within the next couple of weeks. So the other two games that I have been playing on PC, uh, one of them has been No Man's Sky, which I obviously picked up as part of the Steam sale. It came down to £16, and now that it's been out for, what, over a year now, um, seemingly, um, obviously there's been an awful lot of work going on in the background um, for patching and things like that and trying to improve the game. Um, a lot more content. Uh, yeah. it. it's, it's, it's very different to the game that came out on day one. Yeah, I've only put in about an hour and a half, um, but within that hour and a half I have managed to get off my first planet um, after um, sort of obtaining and building all the resources and things that I needed. It's a lovely game to play and it has a remarkable ability of being very relaxing. Yes. But quite stressful at the same yeah. time. Um, because you're walking long distances and what have you, um, at least initially, uh, to get to the resources and things that you need to mine, uh, to generate or to build all the little pieces that you need for your spaceship and things. It's quite relaxing that way. But whenever you're on a hot planet and not necessarily knowing how long it's going to take you to get back and your health is maybe a little bit dodgy mm. and you're looking for either caves or places of shade um, to make sure that your energy doesn't go down too quickly, it's definitely a little bit stressful. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm running it on maybe low to medium settings. Unfortunately, my graphics card on the PC isn't quite substantial enough to run it at high level settings. But even then, it's lovely to look at Mm. and while the game has been criticised an awful lot for not necessarily reaching the expectations um, that had been generated through the PR and the hype um, before its actual launch the game itself, the scope of it is really quite impressive. The fact that you start off on a planet are able to mine the resources and things on that planet. Each planet has its own different ecosystem as such with different animals and supposedly procedurally generated things so you get different things on different planets and things like that. But to then be able to go into your spaceship and take off from that planet 
and then go to another planet or a space station is phenomenal, um, really. And considering that it was it was backed by a large company, obviously Sony, um, but for such a small team of developers to manage this has nothing short of astounding. Yeah. Um, in reality, and yeah, I'm I've been very impressed with it, and it'll be one of those ones that'll maybe drop in and out of um every so often, maybe you know. Get go from just planet hop, um, mm-hmm. every so often, and uh, but yeah, definitely worth the money that I paid for it, and um, it's I think it's even cheaper than say sixteen pounds on PMS four now um, for the number mm-hmm. of people who have probably traded it in, um, at CEX and things like that. It's maybe hovering maybe just over a tenner, yeah, um, potentially. Um, lovely game. I know you've um talked about it previously. And even yeah. had a, a little bit of a YouTube um, or a couple of YouTube videos and things about it as well. Um, yeah, really nice. The other game that I have been playing is All Mark's Fault. I warned you. <laughs> I warned no. you so many times. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I have been playing Adventure Capitalist. <sighs> I know it's another clicker game. I know I don't necessarily like clicker games. <sighs> they. They range from either being very bad or very good, and there's very few very good. A lot of them just seem to hover in and around the very mediocre um, area. You know, your threes, fours out of tens. Yeah. Ad- Adventure Capitalist is one of those. There's you're getting a Pavlovian response. <laughs> so oh, it's just seeing those numbers go up. Yeah, oh, it's so satisfying. It's, um, it's so good, <laughs> but the game is garbage. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's nothing there. there. No, I've started or put the money into the Moon and Mars um, trips or expeditions or whatever. And Pointless. Certainly point- All it means is that you've got <laughs> numbers going up on three different screens rather than one. <laughs> It's it's very well presented. It is, yes. It's nice and simple. It is a really nice user interface. But there's just it's just there's just nothing. There's just nothing there. But I, I it took me weeks to break myself away <laughs> from playing it. <laughs> and eventually uninstall it from your phone as well. I yeah, everything. I took it off everything. Yeah. What just wiped it wiped its existence off all of my devices. <laughs> <sighs> oh. yeah, I, I still kind of hate myself for playing it but yeah it's just one of those ones that it's there it's uh, I'm going to uninstall it at some stage earlier whenever I was sort of browsing the Steam store and what have you um, Happy Hippo Games I think that's the team Hyper Hippo Games it is have a new game in early access called Adventure Communist <laughs> Alright I'm on board for that <laughs> Um, let's see what else have I played um, there was another one Final Fortress um, I was playing on Android and did a little mini review and again it's just seeing numbers going up progressing onto a new fortress to see the numbers go up a little bit quicker it might have an end game but it was just taking too long and it got uninstalled and mm. yeah it's going to go the same way as Adventure Capitalist just do yourself a favour just uninstall it now <laughs> No, I don't want the clicks on the podcast out of <laughs> <laughs> Um Yeah. Um, uh, 
Laura, what do you think of the clicker games? Uh, clicker games, if like as as I said before, sort of with uh, Magic Up Jump, if they're in the right kind of wrapping, I may enjoy them. Um, I know that there was a really good one I played before that was uh, Lindsay Lohan's uh, Road to Fame or Lindsay Lohan's <laughs> something something to fame. And like it was surprisingly deep in that it was about trying to like be friends with Lindsay Lohan and become famous. But then fame started to become like this uncontrollable monster that you were getting punished for that you couldn't stop because all of the mechanics of clicker games are about like getting getting your numbers to rise exponentially higher without having to keep doing input, like trying to raise things like your automatic yep. score increase things. And I reached a point where I couldn't spend my points as fast as I was automatically generating them. And I was being punished for having too many fans because like controversies were happening. And I was like, <laughs> like my life was falling apart because I had too many fans and I couldn't undo my fame. And it ended up becoming this like commentary on fame is a, yeah, like fame is a thing that can get out of your hands and your life can ruin itself without you having any control over it because fame is like a living beast. Mm. That was fantastic. And it started off as just a standard clicker game. Like if, if you can get an interesting wrapping around it, I will totally play clicker games. There are some mm. clicker games that are, that are more transparent with their clicker nature, I guess. I would totally play that Lindsay Lohan one if 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 it wasn't for the fact that she insulted my town during the EU referendum and then by way of apology promised to come and turn on our Christmas lights and then weaseled out turning on our Christmas lights. Well, maybe lights, it's so. because she had too much fame and couldn't deal with the fame and that, that caused her to, like, miss your light ceremony. Play the game. Find find <laughs> out the struggle that Lindsay Lohan lives with. I might have to now, yeah. <laughs> Um, for those, um, mobile games are always good um, and fun to play for laps gamers. Mm. Um, but as for then the either No Man's Sky or Adventure Capitalist, I would say don't touch Adventure Capitalist yeah, don't. with a barge pole. Mm. No, um, go and play No Man's Sky. Mm. If you've got a PS4, pick it up cheap on PS4. If you only have a PC, wait until it comes down in price to get it on PC. Um, it's great, but I wouldn't say it is worth the full price that you could pay for it. No, no. Um, under £20 is um, well worth uh, the value of it, so it is. If you um, go into it knowing what you're going to get, which yeah. people on day one arguably didn't. didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you go in knowing what you're going to get, then yeah, it's, it's, it's a great game. Okay, um, we'll move on to shoutouts. Um, we don't have any specific sh- listener shoutouts, and as we have a guest on, Laura, go ahead and promote yourself Me? and your work. I'm Laura K. Buzz pretty much everywhere. Yes. Laura K. Buzz on Twitter, YouTube, Patreon, that's the one that pays the bills. You can also find me at Let's Play Video Games or pretty much anywhere on the internet that will pay me money to do work for them. Yes, you are definitely easy to find. Yeah, just Laura K. Buzz, that'll find most of my things. That's okay. Well, thank you very much, Laura, for coming on. Um, It's been just wonderful to chat to you and uh, chat to you outside of um, the very brief appearance that we had together on the Year of Steam podcast. Um, I'm still a little bit sad that the Year of Steam has stopped and uh, unfortunately circumstances just didn't really work yeah. out life does what it does but we yeah, yeah for us for us, 
even for us to be on together towards um, the end, I was supposed to be on the last show, but unfortunately, uh, with my son's broken leg and um, I think there was just sort of scheduling issues on the night and what have you, so it, it just wasn't feasible. And then Lauren and Ian and uh, yourself were very graciously um, offered myself and Stevie the chance to continue it on, but unfortunately, yeah, life just gets in the way and at the minute I'm just about managing to stay as part of a team on one podcast, never mind running <laughs> another one. It wasn't a time-sensitive podcast, so you should all go back and listen to the two years of episodes of Year of Steam that we recorded, oh, because they're not yeah. time-sensitive, so you can go listen to them now. <laughs> the uh, the percentage of games that we reviewed on Steam is infinitely smaller now than it was. Yeah, <laughs> but we still, you know, we worked through our backlog, yeah. it's fine. No, there, there, there is a, yeah, there is a huge amount of games to go back to, and uh, try and get through them now before the Steam sale to Christmas, and, you know, you'll have something to pick up. So, thank you very much for listening as well, and, uh, well, from me, good night. Bye. Good night. Good night.